Welcome to Saltgrass Turning the Goldfields Green, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. In the last episode, we heard from some of the Jabarung Heritage Protection Embassy protesters who have been occupying and protecting several trees of cultural significance along the Western Highway, an area that has been hotly contested for the last three years. It's a 12-kilometre stretch of land that cuts through Jabarung women's country, with many hundreds of trees slated for clearing to allow for the highway upgrade. But among them are several very old trees that are of cultural significance to the Aboriginal people, the Jabarung. As noted last time, and it is worth restating, this is controversial. Some members of the Jabarung have approved the works and have been working with the state government to negotiate the path of the highway. But there are others who disagree and have put everything else in their lives aside to defend the trees. In this episode, I have two interviews for you. One with Gabe, the young man who was up the tree when the last show was recorded. He spent two nights and three days up in what is called the grandfather tree to successfully halt works until legal processes mandated a stop work, a reprise, until the 19th of November, which is this week. The other interview is with a woman who goes by the name of Spring Blossom. Both are Castlemaine residents and both have been visiting and living at the Jabarung Heritage Protection Embassy camp on and off over the last few years. We discuss what the action a couple of weeks ago was like for them and what it means to them to be an Indigenous ally in times like this. Though we are discussing action happening on Jabarung land, both of these interviews were recorded back on Jara country, home of the Jajawarung. I would like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging, as the struggles of being a traditional custodian of these occupied lands has not gone away. Salt of the earth people, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. So our first interview is with Gabe Lillington. We met at a beautiful location by a creek just out of Castlemaine, where he'd been camping with a friend for the last few days. They were about to head back over to the Jabwurrung camp later that day. I apologise for the occasional wind sound, and Gabe was wearing a puffer jacket that makes a noise, a rustling noise, every time he moves his arms. It was really nice to meet him. He's a very thoughtful and gentle young man, and I really hope that you enjoy hearing his perspective on things. We're out near Castlemaine where Gabe's been camping since he came down from the tree. I'm just catching up with him about what that experience was like. So we're going to have some birds down in the background, and it's quite lovely out here. It's a nice sunny day. All right, so... Gabe, how did you hear about the Jabarung sacred trees and how did you get involved? I've been trying to remember that recently. It was last year. It wasn't when the red alerts went out, but it was it was around that time I went up for the first time with a friend for a day or a night and we camped at Compound. They'd just been putting in the Compound where now all the trucks and work vehicles and workers live. And it's become this big fortified place, but that was it was just putting up fences at that point. And yeah, I remember staying up all night there and feeling a sense of the country and like how the country was reacting to us camping there and 
vice versa and just being able to listen to things and have things pointed out to me by mob and by people who'd been there a long time like yeah it was really cool and I, I hadn't experienced that even though I'd grown up on Judge and country and around here and come camping out places like this before. Mm. So you kind of got a different sense of engagement with the country? Yeah just came ah, it's really hard to describe <laughs> it's like just synchronicities and felt like the land had our back you know we were fighting together to kind of be protecting it yeah that's really interesting so you went for that one night and then how how did you engage further after that yeah well I, I went and had to come back I think I was doing a permaculture course in town at the time and was like yeah next weekend I'll be I'll be back there and as it often happens you get lost and wrapped up in what I was doing in Castlemaine and forgot about that connection and how that, that that had started to kind of work on me and so like I went back maybe six months later summer this year when they were trying to push into women's camp and we had some lock-on devices ready then to if they were going to try and you know, they were trying to push in and do a survey up from where the road would start near Boingor and come up through women's camp, through the grandfather tree and then over the train tracks to the directions tree and up to top camp. So, yeah, we had we had a caravan, some cars there. That was the first experience I'd had with like being arrestable and preparing to be arrested and locking onto that with an elbow lock. We just waited for three mornings, kind of, wondering if they were going to come every morning. That kind of really woke me up to what it could be like out there and the intensity of the days and just the length of the days when that kind of pressure was being put on on camp. But it also made me really feel connected in another way to the people there and to just my ability to stand. So was there any training or advice or discussions about how to do all that stuff and how to handle the police if they came through and all that sort of thing? Mm. Yeah, always people there with lots of legal knowledge and people who'd been there for a long time and you know, people who had experience with that before. So it was very consensual and everyone was given as many facts uh, and information as possible about what they were putting themselves into and what, what they'd be facing at the cop shop and further on in court. There were worries that people who got arrested for those sort of actions would get really hectic bail conditions, which we saw happen recently. It means that main, the main one is that, that was given out last week was that people can't be in the Grampians or, I think, stall area, which is a very broad, huge part of western central Victoria. And they can't write about their experiences being locked on or arrested. They can't refer to any Vic Roads or Major Roads Project Victoria's employees or anything basically that happened Vic Pole. Like just, just really trying to keep people quiet, I guess. And a lot of those bail conditions are now being overturned. I didn't get any because I was up there long enough for the lawyer to work it out. Yeah, yeah. To f- they, they, they fought for it and uh, yeah won that recently which is amazing yeah, yeah. That's great. so did you then go back and and stay there 
over periods of time over the last few months before this last stint? No, that was the last time. Then in August, I just I just felt like I needed to go back up there again. I'd come out of COVID pretty quickly and been on Judge Owen country here and had worked and done a bit of stuff and was thinking about moving back here and getting a share house, but I went out to Castlemania and then I went out there and pretty quickly just knew that cancelled those plans and just knew that I wanted to be out there full time, pretty much coming back here and visiting. Yeah, since late August, so September, October, it's just coming to November. So what happened on the day that you decided to go up a tree and, and lock in? Yeah, well, the day before had been massive and we'd seen there like aggression and tactics from Vic Roads, Major Roads Projects, Vic Pole, public order unit response, public unit response cops, like there were 50 or so cars of, of those. And we'd seen how aggressive they were going to be about moving from camp to camp, going first to Directions Tree and then going to women's camp, making people leave at women's camp. Right after they cut down the Directions Tree, they went and fenced the grandmother tree in there and all the buildings and set up a perimeter, basically set up security guards, set up lights, blocked off all the entrances. They dumped piles of dirt at some of the entrances so people couldn't get in big rocks and stuff. So we, we knew they were gonna try and hit top camp the next day. So yeah, I got a bit of sleep and then we, everyone was just kind of working together to hold our ground and be as staunch as possible and work out who could be involved in what ways and who could fill the, the roles that needed to be filled. So that morning I was pretty busy most of the morning I hadn't actually thought about what I was going to do myself. Just getting people ready to lock on the barrels. And I just, my friend very wisely, uh, like half an hour before the cops rocked up, had put a rope in the tree because he knew that we'd needed, would need more people there. And I had just checked in with me and I said, yeah, I'm very happy to... Like, thank you for <laughs> thinking about me, really. Uh, and so I just, just quickly got up there, pretty much just as the cops pulled up, and got a friend to chuck some water and, like, some snacks in a bag. I just had the clothes that I was wearing, like a jacket and a T-shirt. Yeah, I <laughs> didn't have much of a long-term plan just because things were so full that day. So you ended up being up there for pretty much three days and two nights. What was the experience like? What was going through your head? And, and like, were there points where you're like, I just got to come down? Or were you just staunch the whole time? Like, I'm never coming down. Yeah, there was definitely one point about 11.30pm on the second night. It was getting cold again, proper cold. And, like, I had found a new spot to sleep or trying to sleep that I thought was going to be more comfortable. But it just, it wasn't. And I just was really worried about... I was really worried that I'd have to come down because I was not going to get enough sleep and just be fatigued and it'd be too dangerous to be up there. And that made me feel really upset. At that point, I started, I started getting kind of auditory hallucinations and there's a circle of lights that were all running on really powerful generators around the trees. 
and they created this like hum, this quite loud thrum from all the different sides created this very strange kind of yeah situation and I, I kept and like I, I started hearing things like birds but I heard thousands and thousands of birds and all the trees were lit up with these super bright lights so it felt like it was in this strange like yeah amazing like enclosed arbitorium or something <laughs> like you're an exhibit at the zoo or something yeah or, or involved in in some strange future yeah it was very weird uh, light in the middle of the dark so yeah that was that was probably the only time I was like considering taking the cops up on their offer or at least having more of a chat to them about it at that yeah. point were you the only one left up a tree or were there yeah. still some other people up there yeah my friend had left that morning which like if he hadn't I wouldn't have been able to stay up the person who put the rope up was also in the tree for a few hours until that night and they tried to get us some water and they got arrested so like without the whole community but without those two people I wouldn't have been able to stay up there because the second person gave me the, the bag that they'd packed a bit more thoughtfully and they gave me their jacket and their pants and food and, and water that they had didn't have much water but they had a bit they had a couple of crackers and some useful stuff so yeah that allowed me to to stay up there and so that was night two okay you got up there on the Tuesday morning, yeah, morning. and so you're up there Tuesday night what happened on Tuesday night because I heard the police destroyed some of the sort of support that you had on the tree yeah, that was in the Arvo. They'd brought a cherry picker in. The cutting people out of the barrels had kept them busy, but they'd brought a cherry picker in later in the afternoon, and someone had set up a tree sit in the tree a long time ago, a few years ago, which was a great place to sleep and hang out and had plenty of water and supplies, and so that was the first target that they, the forest search and rescue cops went for, and they took that down said that if we wanted any of it we could come and get it they left a packet of like protein shake that was it Um, so they took the platform but left you a protein shake yeah so all the time saying that they had a duty of care and they kind of wanted us to be safe and well looked after but this was the the dialogue the whole time people would say that the cops would say that and then they wouldn't action it at all so i didn't feel like there was any point engaging in that conversation after a while because they weren't actually going to do anything about it so yeah they took that down and we we climbed higher up into the tree just with the supplies that we had in our backpack so you mentioned people locked onto barrels what was the overall setup at that point in terms of people protesting and all of that there were six people connected to barrels with cement on them locked on with wrist bracelets connected to carabiners that locked on into the barrel on the inside so they to take away all the cement and concrete to get to their hands and unlock them. Then there were people, legal observers, who were filming, other observers who were filming, peacefully standing their ground. A group of protesters, like protectors, linked arms and sat down to make it more difficult for the cops to pull them off. And the cops were pulling them off with, like, around their necks and kind of, like, assaulting their heads to drag them away from the person they were linked arms with. 
and sometimes someone on the barrel just underneath the grandfather tree they were ripped around so their shoulder got dislocated that was already like damaged and they told the police that and they they did that and then when they arrested them later on they really really pulled that shoulder up with the handcuffs so that was really distressing to see and not really able to do much just yell kind of support and yell at the cops from up in the tree mm. and just seeing people slowly being pushed back and moved off seeing Chels and other Jaburung women being removed whilst like singing and practicing their culture on their on their land was really hard to see it was really messed up mm. yeah but they didn't try and get anyone down very hard with the cherry picker. Yeah. They just decided to wait us out. Yeah. I don't think they expected us to be up very long. So you were up there long enough for a court case to be held and a decision to be made. It seemed to me that that was absolutely fundamental. Like if you'd come down anytime sooner, they would have just moved in and cut down the tree as soon as you were down. I don't think they would have moved in and cut that grandfather tree down immediately. I don't know. It might be that unprotected. My understanding is it's not as protected as the grandmother tree, but it's has they were telling me multiple times and I got it on camera that the police and major roads officials told me that that tree wouldn't be cut down. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that's so they've said that about things before. They've put out falsehoods about the directions tree being cut down. They've they've lied a lot. So okay. I didn't feel comfortable coming down on on their word. Yeah. And so by the end of it, you must have been really sore and tired and hungry and thirsty. What's it been like since you, you've come down? Like, what was your reception back at camp and, and how's your recovery been, basically? I actually felt really good. Usually when you're in a tree sit, you're sitting and lying down all the time unless you want to climb up, basically vertically or down again. So your body is, like, really high up, not being able to pump blood properly and not really being able to exercise your muscles or your limbs. This beautiful tree is so big and had so many different limbs and huge branches and different sections that basically I was just slowly exploring it over those couple of days and learning, like getting, gaining more confidence with my ropes and being able to kind of set up little beds in different spots and get to know it. and. By the last day, I felt really comfortable. I was really happy to be there. I, I kind of was confused and immediately a bit unsure about coming down because unless it was for the, the right reason and mob had wanted me to, which was the case, but it just started raining and I felt amazing in the rain. Like, it felt really healing and it was giving me the water that I needed and felt super, like, cleaned and... I didn't have much protection from it, but I didn't really feel like I needed it. So I felt really like supple and energetic when I came down and quite happy. Yeah, I just got fluids. That was the main thing. Yeah. You mentioned that you had found a way to move in the tree. Over that period of time in the tree, your sense of the tree itself, did that change? Yeah, definitely. I could, I think, sense that it was comfortable with me being there and that he wanted to like support me and I began to feel more and more comfortable on the second night like after us talking about feeling 
in a pretty whack space, I went down right to the bottom branch, which was huge, like a, a huge width of my body, and just lay there and actually got some sleep and some rest. And, yeah, definitely felt very held the whole time there. Mm. I think it was a big part of my mental strength yeah, and well-being. You had your phone on you and a little wind-up charger, mm-hmm. so you were able to stay in contact a little bit, but it was a struggle to actually communicate with the people on the ground, wasn't it? Yeah, I dropped that wind-up charger on the second day and it broke. Um, I couldn't access it, so I ran out of power pretty quickly after that. And I didn't feel very comfortable talking on non-encrypted services, which takes quite a lot of batteries. So, yeah, I basically just went out of contact pretty quickly, which is which is okay. I could see people across the road, and it was more like communicating to them. I've realised after the fact that like I wasn't I wasn't in a terrible mental space. So letting them know how you were was actually the yeah. thing they should have been doing. So now you're planning today to go back and spend more time. What are your thoughts about what might happen? Just regrouping and just connecting to each other, I think is a massive part of what's happening and what will continue to happen. As a white person, as an ally, a lot of people talk about allyship and what it means to be an ally for Indigenous people or black people. And what, what was your feeling about how to negotiate that in the camp? And some of the complexities of, for example, there is sort of a difference of opinion within the Jabarung people. Like, it's only one portion of the Jabarung people who are protesting the trees and others have approved it. So what, what's your sense of how to navigate that sort of thing uh, as a white person? I think my gut, a lot of the time, listening to the people that are in front of me as well as listening to the other opinions. But but I trust the mob that are there and that I've talked to and I've heard from and the fight that, that they've been fighting. And I trust that they are connected to their land and they're they're listening to their land and receiving information from from there and that's that's where to listen to so I think being an, an ally or a protector is about trying to foster that connection with land yourself respecting mother and respecting country and respecting mob who have that connection and in a much, much deeper way and have had it for such a long time. I know your, your dad's a permaculturalist and you've probably been raised with all sorts of green values, mm. but how do you think that has plays into also your desire to protect this particular landscape? Yeah, I can't say, I guess, like, logically necessarily, but I'm sure it does have an effect. I was talking to someone recently and they helped me kind of through the seeing like why I was doing this and kind of helped me with the kind of the thanks that I've been getting that I, I feel uncomfortable about because so many people have been involved and are involved in protecting those trees. I guess just like feeling like this is my purpose at the moment and I felt quite purposeless for the last few years going to the city and coming back and you know not finding my core doing and a lot of the things that I've 
kind of grown up doing and yeah the the permaculture community that I've been around here and the values that I'm sure I've been instilled in me but also just like coming out here and camping I've been doing with my dad for a, a long time and that that sort of thing just getting a love for that and getting a sense of love for like the important places around country and being excited enough to like start setting myself up to to do that on my own and like kind of getting more and more comfortable camping around this area like in the Anganook and yeah around the Loddon and I mean my mum was an activist as well she was involved in the Green and Common protests nuclear disarmament protests in in England so it's definitely a very very much supported by my family they they're very encouraging for me to just be houseless and going off in my car and yeah it does feel like a pretty natural development for me at the moment and I'm definitely keen to go a lot of will to keep to keep doing it this living out of your car and living in a camp and even now when you could be staying with your parents in a house you're camping Mm. has it maybe shifted your idea of what is necessary to sustain life and our consumerist sort of object accumulating lifestyles. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, definitely being in the tree. I've just reflecting to my friend who I'm camping with about that this morning. Just the lack of things. Like even yeah, there is a there is a lack when you're camping and living out your car. Like every time I would go home to turn on the tap in the last few weeks when I was living at camp and see the water coming out. Even that's a rainwater system still being like whoa, that's crazy to just have that ease in that system being up in the tree was another level of that I felt because I really had to conserve my water and food and just that lack really allowed me to see the value and the the beauty of the taste in like every time I allowed myself to have a bit of water or like had a bit of like a protein shake nut feast once a day or twice a day and like just a lot more in touch with where that energy was coming and and into my body and out again and how enjoyable that was to just really feel on the base level. Did you feel like you got energy from the tree? It sounds like earlier that's what you were implying to. Yeah, definitely. I think it gave me some of his energy to be there. Just like a like a bird might or banya, the possums that live in that tree. I think any home that you have that's sustainable, it's not just about you building or creating spaces that fuel you, it's like that place is helping to fuel you as well. was Gabe Lillington talking about his time up the grandfather tree on Jabberung land. Next I have an interview with a woman who uses Spring Blossom as her activist name. She's a great grandmother and has been an activist for much of her life. We have a chat about her involvement with the Jabberung and how she, a great grandmother, climbed into a grandmother tree to try and stop or slow the roadworks along the Western Highway. Early in this interview, I ask her what started her off as an activist, and she refers to her own experience, 
with a child of hers being taken by the state against her will. This is forced adoption and was a practice that was common in the second half of the 20th century here in Australia. In 2012, there was an Australian Senate inquiry into this and the resulting report found that babies were indeed taken illegally by doctors, nurses, social workers, religious figures and sometimes with the assistance of adoption agencies or other authorities and adopted to married couples. Some mothers were coerced or drugged which made their consent, in inverted commas, a fiction. Many of these adoptions occurred after the mothers were sent away by their families due to the stigma associated at the time with being pregnant and unmarried. So I just wanted to give you that context for when she talks about it because it was quite widespread and a lot of women experienced this. She also refers to Madeline or Maddie a few times and she's referring to Madeline Hudson who I interviewed about the zero waste cooking course at Community House in episode 8 of this series. I sat with Springbottom to record this interview in her garden in Castlemaine, which was so abundant with flowers and vegetables and greenery, as they use it as a very active food-producing garden, as you'll hear in the interview. It was beautiful. It was full of butterflies, and at one point, a sulfur-crested cockatoo flew over us and started squawking at us from, from the branches of one of the trees. So you might hear that in this interview as well. So I'm sitting with Spring Blossom in her backyard and it's been a week since all of the action at the Jabarung Heritage Protection Embassy was happening and just going to have a chat about her experiences. The first time that I went to the Jabarung country at the you know, top camp was with Auntie Sue and Charles Rankin who had enlightened me to the fact that there was a struggle out there. So I went with, with Auntie Sue and there were quite a few people, including Zalanak camp there by then. And that's nearly three years ago. Mm. Yeah. So how often have you been back there over those three years? Oh, I've been there many times. I often stay overnight and sometimes I just go down for the day, depending on whether I've brought someone with me that needs to get back or whether I've got the opportunity to stay the night. Sometimes I've stayed a few nights and I've always contemplated the idea of moving there but it never came to fruition and I guess this is why because we've come to the crossroads now of whether or not the Victorian government and the Victorian people can see the absolute significance of what it is that they're allowing to be destroyed which is of its international significance as much as anything because it's a sacred ceremonial grounds where people have performed ceremonies for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and it's so arrogant and disrespectful of the state government to allow this to occur. Before we get to what happened last week and you climbing up a tree, tell me a bit about your history as an activist. Well I suppose the first time that I started feeling like an activist was the results of what the Victorian state government had done to me personally, which was that they removed my child from my body while I was unconscious and they didn't give him back to me. And from that point on, I think that made me a person that was looking for justice and understanding of how do we get there. So after that experience, I traveled to Finland with a boyfriend that I'd married in Australia 
and we travelled across the Trans-Siberian Railway to Finland and I lived there for six months and during that time I learnt a lot of things because I was reading a lot and I was listening to Radio Moscow and I was uh, listening to Radio Luxembourg as well which is, I don't know if some people would know that that's a very down-to-earth, radical, extreme sort of radio station that that is very people-friendly and, you know, informative. Then I came back to Australia and I got a job with Foreign Affairs and Trade in Canberra through the telecommunications. I worked for them for seven years and when I resigned, I knew I had to go back to the UK and follow my own ancestry. So in doing so, I was introduced by a retired forester to the yew trees. And the yew trees are a magnificent ancient tree that grows for thousands of years. And it's in the churchyards of most uh, churches in England, Scotland, and Ireland and Wales. And I ended up with 10 months in the UK following the trail of all the ancient years across the continent of the UK. Sitting in those trees and asking for my ancestry to be returned to me, I had visions and and connections. Hello, Coppy. <laughs> so then, when did you come back to Australia and what other sort of campaigns have you been involved in, in terms of activism? Well, when I, I had the job in Canberra, with Foreign Affairs and Trade, I had the opportunity to do non-violent action training in in regards to the, the Franklin River. And so, and then I was offered a seat in a small plane to fly down to Tasmania because the, the lecturer at the university couldn't make it because he had papers to sign. So I went in his place and I was there the day that Bob Hawke got into power and the Franklin River was deemed free from being damned. That's a big moment. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. And I met some of my dearest friends down there and uh, who are still my friends today. And I'm very grateful for that mm. connection to the, the people who have been working all their lives for, for, for the environment, basically. Mm. And, you know, what it brings it back to is people are part of the environment. What do you feel when you're down on Jaburang amongst those trees? Well, I think the whole area is a ceremonial ground and, and, and the healing has taken place because of Zelenak and Amanda being there for so long. They've done ceremony and they've really tuned in and, and the land is so happy that they've been there recognising the place as a spiritual relation to the people who've lived there forever so it's like for me I just feel like I'm I mean I always feel like I'm on indigenous land I never don't feel that I don't own land I never would it's not my ambition to own land I think that the land can't belong to anybody we're here for such a short time and what we need to do is make peace with the land and and allow it to have all the tiniest ecosystems surviving us and not destroying everything so when I'm down there I know I'm on the front line of a world movement and that what we do and say is very important and 
that we're not just speaking for ourselves, but we're speaking for the plants, plant medicines, the animals, the insects and the birds, and all of life, really. So tell us a bit about what happened last week and how you, as a, I believe you're a great-grandmother, is that true, how you ended up the grandmother tree? Well, I saw that the police were approaching and everybody was getting ready and people were locking on. And I walked beside Zelenak and I said, Zelenak, I want to go up into that grandmother tree. He said, all right, go on then. And I took that as having permission to go into the grandmother tree. So I then got a couple of the beautiful women that are supporters and protectors and I said, can they help me? So they ran off and got a ladder and we they held the ladder while I walked up into the tree. But I didn't have time to get a bucket or, or water or, or a mask. I couldn't go to the toilet up there. So that was what shortened my stay in that beautiful grandmother tree. And she was so gentle with me. I just couldn't believe how soft and gentle she was with me. And, and at one point I took my tension off the of the protectors and the police and all that and I started filming the bark on the tree and as I did that I just burst into tears and started howling because it was so so horrible to think that people would take away the life of something that's so old and so full of wisdom and knowledge that is possible to be passed on to people if they become sensitized to it and so yeah that's how it was for me up there. How long were you up there? Only about, I don't know, maybe it was three hours or four hours or something like that. I don't know, because I was having breakfast when the police arrived, so it was about 8.30, so I guess I got there at 9, up in the tree, 9, 10, 11, 12, maybe, maybe three and a half hours. Mm. I couldn't tell how long I'd been up there. It was like I'd been there always. Yeah. <laughs> it was like... Yeah, it was time was standing still, and I'm sure that that's the energy of sitting in a tree, mm. and especially where I was, which was to, between the two main branches of the tree, mm. way up high. How did you get down? Well, the three of the police women came because they actually were honouring the fact that it was sacred women's area, and so they started pulling the fence down, but the three women came up to me and said, what would you like to do? Do you want to come down? And I said, well, actually, I have to come down because I've got to go to the toilet. (laughs) So they said, oh, that's okay. We'll get you down. Don't worry. We'll get the cherry picker. And Maddie had actually sent me a text saying, they're going to send the cherry picker over to get you down. So then the policewoman that was going to be with me in the cherry picker said I'll just put this harness on you and we'll click this onto you and I I, I said no 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 you're not going to do any of that I said I got up here on a ladder and I'm going to get down on a ladder or I'm not going in that cherry picker (laughs) I said and anyway how much you going to charge me for the cherry picker for using the cherry picker to get me down and she looked at me and questioned and uh, she didn't know so they decided they'd get me a ladder for me and they did. It was very simple to get down and then they escorted me to the toilet and then when I came out of the toilet they wanted to tell me that I had these rights and that I would either go or I could go 
and I said, please stop, please stop. I just went to the toilet. I have to wash my hands. I need to go and wash my hands before I talk about this, okay? And they said, oh, yeah, okay. So and they escorted me over to where they could wash my hands. And they squirted Dettol all over my hands and <laughs> and I rinsed them. And then I went back to where they were with the paddy wagon there. And they said, you can go if you like. And I said, oh, and what if I don't? They said, well, we'll have to arrest you. I said, hmm, okay. Well, I think you better arrest me. So they did, and they put me on the pad in the paddy wagon. And I found out what it's like to be in a paddy wagon and in a cell that's not even got any padding, but it's all cement, and how horrible that must be for people who are re-traumatised when they're picked up by the police. and how traumatising that would be for them and they'd go off their bloody heads as I would if I was re-triggered in my post-traumatic stress disorder. And so this is what people don't recognise in Indigenous people is that their families have been through so much pain and suffering because of all of the removal policies that happened way, way back and and the distortion of their families that happened because of the removal policies and the stolen generations, the deaths in custody, the removal of children, all of these things have affected more than just the one family. It's a, it's a ripple effect, it affects the whole community and everybody is suffering because of these horrible things that have occurred. So, you know, to put them in a unpadded cell with cement everywhere and in a state of triggering their post-traumatic stress or whatever condition they might have had hidden would explode into a possibility of deaths in custody. It's just wrong and the police are wrong and I can't emphasise that enough. As a white ally in situations like this, what, what do you feel your role or responsibility is and how do you navigate perhaps the complexities of, of what the Jabarung situation is where there might be different Indigenous people on, on either side of of the situation. Look, I've been working with Indigenous issues for a long time. I've got a history of going back from when I arrived back in Australia after that trip away and being living in King's Cross and meeting some of the Aboriginal activists there, some of whom have passed, and they have been incredibly inspirational in, and the teachings have always been strong. So my relationship with the Indigenous struggle on this land is a personal one. I'm sixth and seventh generation Australian and um, on both sides of my family. And I find that that leaves with me an obligation to try and fix the relationships that we've had with our Indigenous people of this land. Not our, but the people who have been here before European invasion. And so I feel a great responsibility to helping put this right. And in the, in the way that I go about that is to listen to my elders, to follow their directives, and not to think that I can think my way out through it, but that their, their ancient thinking through their sustainable lifestyles in their communities is what our societies need to listen to and understand and try to grasp the importance of how we can live in harmony with one another and not have these terrible lies and corruption and, and collusion with authority 
that doesn't earn their, th their, their authority through life experiences, but being put in positions of power and uh, being given the authority by a illegal government, we might say, because, you know, they came here and maritime law and they're still running on maritime law. It's a legal matter that needs to go to an international court of, for all Indigenous people to recognise that their land has been taken from them with a very in, uh, abusive project set out by the people who've come to these lands and wanted to take over. And they did that with guns because the people here never had any guns. It must have terrified them when the guns came shooting out and, and cannonballs that blew people up and, and the massacres that occurred all over this continent. And, uh, you know, these things have been known to me for a long time. I think that the general public are now catching on to the fact that we've got a bloody history, a, a violent, abusive history that's been hidden from the people over decades and generations and has only just been able to raise its head and say, hey, excuse me, we've got frontier wars here that we've never dealt with. We're dealing with all these other wars that happened across the other parts of the world, but we've never dealt with the war that has continued to operate here on Australian soil. So until we start to, as a nation, come of age and recognise that our history has been brutally inflicted and our colonial minds haven't been able to accept that we have this bloody history that we need to address in a pop proper way. And the proper way would be, if there's something stolen, it should be given back. And it doesn't mean giving all the land back, and nobody expects that, but it does mean that sacred sites all across this continent needs to be protected forever and not uh, just temporarily until the, the Lands Council gives permission to go in and log it or mine it or whatever because that's not, that's not going to be of any value to the future generations and to the future history of our species. So I can see that as the people of Victoria awaken to the reality of what actually happened at Japarung, which was far more than a, the lives of a few trees, which I don't undermine at all, but the, the reality is that the whole area of 12 kilometres was sacred ceremonial ground where people practised culture for thousands and thousands of years and the, all of the plants and animals and, and trees still hold that culture and are able to transport it into the minds of the Japarung who haven't been exposed to it in their lifetime but, but who can still, if they choose to, they can still return to that as they can in any nation across this continent which, you know, there's hundreds of nations mm -hmm. across the continent and people are returning to their own land. How do you see this Indigenous struggle as linked to this sort of existential climate crisis and the way the West operates? I think that, you know, the Franklin Dam was our win. It was wonderful. Along with Pine Gap, I was up there for the women's action in 1983 for Pine Gap. So these are all things that haven't really made much of a difference in the mindset of the authorities. And I think that in order for us to really 
contemplate the possibility of a future where we begin to repair the earth and work towards a sustainable lifestyle for everyone. Firstly, we must acknowledge that there are people whose relationship to place has gone on for thousands and thousands of years and that that's not insignificant and that we need to honour that because people are part of the environment and they actually had relationships with all the species of animals and plants that are on that place. And it's that relationship that we need to heal, all of us, and we can be led into healing that through the recognition that Indigenous people hold the key as to how we can live in a certain place in a certain way and the plants that need to be planted so that we can go back to a seasonal type of eating that's not not to do with exporting foods all over the world in this way and that way and all the rest of it but actually coming back to our garden as you can see around us we've got food growing everywhere this is mine and Maddie's after four years producing food and making sure that we've got food. Mm. So I think that this is also the front line of the action is to contain ourselves with our own food source, making sure that we can at least produce some of the food that we may need and exchanging foods with others so that we can also, you know, learn how to share predicaments because it's going to get worse and we need to understand that our relationships with one another are the most important aspects of how we go through the coming years that are going to be quite challenging. Going back to country and practicing culture is the healing aspect of how we start to encourage people to shift their consciousness out of a colonial mindset that has constructed a whole lot of stuff to do with the ways in which we see reality Mm. and we actually need to cleanse our minds from the abuse that's inflicted from generations of assimilating into an illusion that there is more than enough for everybody to keep consuming because the bottom line is that materialism is tearing our planet apart and we've got to stop. I don't know how we get people to understand that that's the key is to stop consuming and start to produce our own foods and share what we have and start recycling everything and finding inventive ways. You know, we've got so many bright people on the planet that have invented so many wonderful things for sustainable living. And we know that we've got the answers. It's just that we can't get our answers into the mainstream so that everybody benefits from the support that governments would give if everybody was on the same page. And that is that we work towards and move towards having a sustainable lifestyle. And, you know, you can talk about sustainable lifestyles in all sorts of ways. It won't matter if the climate changes so long as we look after ourselves. It's shifting in a paradigm, paradigm shifting, so that we start moving into a different reality because the consumer reality is killing us all. It's just driving us all into oblivion. And not only us, but all the plants and animals that will go with us too. And that's the sad part about it is that these 
uh, people who are doing all the mining and, and doing all the destruction on the planet. They just don't want to stop. And unless there's enough of us showing an alternative type of lifestyle to the mainstream, I don't think we'll get the mainstream to do anything about it, and that's the shame of it. Mm. Does the highway through the Jabrung trees sort of symbolise that for you? This is sacred land. Leave it alone. It's women's land. The fact that it's women's birthing place, it just stirs my stomach. I feel sick thinking that these people think it's okay to do what they're doing. And also, I think that older women are our best shot at this. Older women with a big mouth and a lot of anger about the situation need to get out on the front line and start saying, no, you are not going to keep destroying our planet, our children's futures, and we're not going to allow you to do this. And we're going to stop you, but we've got to be in numbers. So come on girls, everybody, hang your aprons up, forget about the cooking and looking after the family, Get ourselves out there and start saying to this state government, you're wrong, you cannot do this. This is sacred place of women's birthing. Now, it needs to be a run on to the fact that women are being abused left, right and centre. In domestic violence that is the highest rate ever. And we've got to start thinking about the future in a way that we've never thought of it before, which is that women need to take charge and stop all this bull, particularly women who have had babies and who are mothers and who understand how to look after more than one person at a time. Because everybody's been looking after themselves and we've got to start looking after everyone, not just one person. That was Spring Blossom, a great-grandmother who climbed the grandmother tree in protest of the contested section of the Western Highway near Ararat in Victoria. You can keep up to date with what is happening at the Embassy via their Facebook page or website, both of which have links in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. My name is Alison Hanley. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Salt. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.